Now, as we've been working through the book of Job on Sunday evenings, we've considered in recent weeks some of the charges and some of the counsel that Job's friends had brought to him in the midst of his trials. We've seen how they used proverbial wisdom and kind of turned it into a club to smack him with. We have seen how they charged him with wickedness, both in general, that he was a man, men are wicked, therefore you are too. And we've seen some of the specific charges that they laid at his feet and said, you're guilty of of these sins. We've seen their counsel to him, which is repent and be blessed. They said, Job, if you just repent, you will be blessed. We've seen in considering that some of Job's responses to these approaches by his friends. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, eventually when you get to chapter 32, you have this young friend, Elihu, who shows up and who tries to offer uh, what he thinks is wisdom to Job's case. But before we get to Elihu and what he brings to the table, I'd like to spend today and another sermon perhaps considering the attitude of Job in the midst of his trial that we see reflected in some of his dialogue with his friends. And I want to do this so that we can glean some insight from Job's history on how to survive. How to survive, right? We need to know. Job went through a crucible more extreme than most of us can even imagine. You know, just think, for instance, we see images and read the stories of the horrors that are happening right now in Ukraine, children being killed, possessions and property being damaged, lives torn apart. This is, this is heartbreaking stuff. How do you survive something like that? If you survive physically, how do you survive that and come through with your faith intact? How do you survive spiritually when the loss of earthly property comes, when the house burns down, when the literal floodwaters rise? How do you survive spiritually when your loved ones are taken from you? How do you survive spiritually when your health is broken like a twig? How do you survive when you get bad advice and adversarial counsel from friends and those close to you when you're already at the lowest point in your life? How do you survive spiritually when you fill in the blank? What is it for you? We need to know. right? We need to know how to survive. And as a general rule, I can say to each one of you with confidence that hard stuff is going to happen to you. We need to know how to spiritually survive catastrophes of various kinds. So what happened to Job? Well, Job lost ten of his children in a single event. He lost his wealth. His health was reduced to him sitting in an ash heap and scraping boils with a broken piece of pottery. His wife, in a moment of weakness, urged him to curse God and die. And then his friends, for all of their good intentions, they didn't come with bad intentions, they came with good intentions, For all their good intentions, they bring false charges against him and keep telling him that if he would just repent and turn away from his wickedness, his life would be great. His latter end would be more magnificent than his beginning. But as we've seen, Job demonstrates quite clearly that sometimes proverbial wisdom doesn't play out in time. Sometimes the wicked live prosperously in this life instead of suffering in this world for their wickedness. As we've seen, Job is not a wicked man, he's actually a godly man who was going to hang on to his integrity and he wouldn't say that he had been wrong where he had actually been right and godly. He wasn't going to confess sin when he hadn't sinned. 
And so in one sense, we could say that Job was surviving by trying to have a proper grasp of proverbial wisdom. Job was trying to understand the limitations of proverbial wisdom. We can say that also Job was trying to survive by uh, faithfully looking at his life, looking at where his life was in relation to God. Were his friends right about him or no? Job said they were not. But what we need to think about this afternoon, though, is what was Job's attitude toward God? God had allowed this tremendous suffering to come into Job's life. Job knew that God was sovereign over the afflictions that had come his way, and Job didn't like the afflictions that came to him. And he wanted, as we, as we see over and over in these dialogue sections, Job wanted to come before God and present his case to God and basically say, God, why, why is this happening to me? This is, this is who I am. Why is this happening to me? But nevertheless, what was, even at that, what was his, the disposition of his heart before God? And I think one of the windows that we get into that question is in Job 13, Verses 15 and 16. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there as we consider uh, briefly this afternoon Job 13, 15 and 16, especially verse 15. Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before him. His presence. So Job says of the Lord, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now it's one thing to say this when we're coming off of some mountaintop spiritual experience, so to speak, right? We have a wonderful Lord's Day under the Word, we celebrate the Lord's Supper perhaps, and uh, it's one thing to say this, though he slay me, I will serve him when everything is going well, when we're on the top of our game, spiritually speaking. That's one thing, but it's quite another thing to say those words from the heart and to mean them when the circumstances are nearly the opposite, when you're basically on the bottom of your spiritual game. And that was Job's case, right? And as we'll see in considering this, we have to start with the first so that we can arrive at the second. In other words, we need to learn the goodness of God's character, and so learn to say this, though he slay me, nevertheless I will hope in him. We need to say that when times are good. We need to learn to say that when everything is fine, so that we can still say that when things are not fine. Matthew Henry helpfully commented on this verse by saying, this is a high expression of faith, and what we should all labor to come up to, to trust in God, though he slay us, that is, We must be well pleased with God as a friend, even when he seems to come forth against us as an enemy. We must believe that all shall work for good to us, even when all seems to make against us. We must proceed and persevere in the way of duty, though it costs us all that is dear in this world, even life itself. We must depend upon the performance of the promise when all the ways leading to it are shut up. We must rejoice in God when we have nothing else to rejoice in. Cleave to Him. Yes, though we cannot for the present find comfort in Him. And this this was Job's outlook. Despite all that had happened to him, even though 
in the providence of God, Job's earthly life, outwardly speaking, had been ruined, Job says that even if God were to go the rest of the way and finish him off, even if God should slay him, he would hope in God. His hope was in God, not in Job's self or in Job's own righteousness. His hope was in the Lord. And I think a good case can be made uh, that this is the same direction in which verse 16 is pointing as well. Though most, uh, most usually across the board, our modern English translations almost universally say something to the effect of, this also will be my salvation. The word that is translated as this, there could at least equally be translated as he. In other words, he also will be my salvation. And indeed, the the older English translations, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, King James, New King James, do translate the word there as he. He also will be my salvation. So Job had had an upright life. As we've seen, he wanted to present his case before the Lord, the case of his innocence. But even then, Job's hope was not in his innocence. It was not in anything in himself. His hope was in the Lord. And what does hope imply? Hope implies that there is a season of waiting. It implies that there is something future in store, something which one does not as of yet possess. As Paul would later say it in Romans 8, Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. It's Romans 8, 24 and 25. And this was Job in these circumstances. He knew that God would save him ultimately, and Job was willing to trust in the Lord and to wait upon him, to hope in him, for that future salvation that would come to him, despite everything that had come upon him in the meantime. And so how could Job say what he says in verse 15, given all that he had gone through, right? That's, that's kind of where the crux of this all comes. Job goes through this terrible time, and he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job could only say this because he knew who God was. He knew that ultimately God is good, that ultimately God is faithful, that ultimately God will judge in righteousness, that ultimately God will bring things out right at last. It's not too much to say that on the basis of what he says there in verse 15, that Job knew the truth of Psalm 25 verse 3 before Psalm 25 was ever written. Psalm 25 3 says, None of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Job knew that God is good and reliable, even when outward appearance, the flesh and the devil would tell us otherwise. They would tell you that God is not faithful, God is not reliable, God will not bring out things right at last. Look at the mess in which things currently are. But Job knew the truth, that none of those who wait for God will be ashamed. And so brothers and sisters, this is really what we need in order to survive spiritually when the hard times come. We need to know up front who God is and what his promises are. And that's ultimately where we have to rest. As James Durham commented on this part of the text of Job, he said, Faith is not to and fro as it meets with difficulties and harsh dispensations, nor up and down as God seems angry or well-pleased. For dispensations are not the object of faith, but the word of promise. 
In other words, we don't, we don't place our trust on the outward ways in which God deals with us. We place our trust in God and in his promises to us. Now, we trust God in the ways in which he deals with us here in this world. We trust him in all of the circumstances that he brings into our lives. But that's the key. We trust him, not the circumstances. We trust his word of promise to us. Because the circumstances will oscillate in this world. As you find in Ecclesiastes, sometimes it happens to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked. Sometimes it happens to the wicked according to the deeds of the righteous. This is how life goes in a fallen world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. God disciplines his children by various means and for various reasons. Sometimes the discipline comes because of sin. Sometimes we walk through hard seasons so that we may learn to rely less on ourselves and on earthly things and more on the Lord himself. And sometimes the wicked seem to get off scot-free in this life. That was Asaph's concern. That was the trouble of Asaph in Psalm 73, where he's looking out at the wicked and they have all the good stuff. They have the easy life. They've been so evil. And Asaph feels like, I've walked with the Lord for, for nothing. That's how it appears here in this world. As we if you're familiar with Psalm 73, you'll know that Asaph's perspective was changed when he went into the house of God and considered the end of the wicked. So we rely on the Lord. We rely on his promises. And the more we lean upon the Lord and the more we lean upon his promises, the better off we are and the more we can say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And in leaning on the Lord and his promises, we are trusting in the words of Psalm 25:10, that all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. When we rely on the Lord and on his promises, we're trusting that indeed all things work together for good to those who love God and who have been called according to his purposes. We're trusting, in the words of Lamentations 3, that the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, that his compassions never fail, that the Lord is good to those who wait for him to the person who seeks him. Now Job was a man who had come to rely on the Lord and had come to love the Lord even before the tragedy ever struck him. Right? Job was not an ungodly man before the tragedy struck. Tragedy strikes him like, oh, I've got to get my life in order. That was, that was not Job. Right? Though we have no record of it, Job probably would have said these words, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. He would have said this before anything bad had happened to him. Right, the, the beginning of the book introduces him as blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. We wouldn't be surprised that a blameless and upright man would say such a thing about the Lord. Before the hardship comes, we wouldn't be surprised that a blameless and upright man would say such a thing about the Lord in the dark day when it had come. Job knew the Lord up front, and since he knew God up front, therefore he was able to hold on to the Lord even in the tragedies that befell him. And so may it be the same with us. Let's grasp the goodness of God, the goodness of his character, his faithfulness, his promises, even before the hard times come. Recognizing up front that God's faithfulness is not in the least bit jeopardized when hard and difficult and trying events befall us here on earth. Let's learn to say, though he slay me, yet I will serve him in the good times so that we may hope to say the same in the hard times. And we can say it, again, because of the Lord's character and because of his promises. 
We can say this because, as Peter recognized, we have no one else to whom we may go. There's no one else to whom we may turn. He alone has the words of eternal life. And we can say that because, in fact, God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. God delivered his sinless son over to be slain for us so that we might have eternal life and a heavenly inheritance through him. And because of Christ's work on our behalf, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But rather, in all of those things which come against us, Paul says we are actually more than conquerors through him who loves us. It is in this way that the Lord himself is our salvation. If indeed we go with that translation of verse 16, he also will be my salvation. You can think of the end of 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, where Paul says that Christ Jesus was made to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So what should the knowledge of these truths do but strengthen us and steal us for the difficult times when they come so that we can say the same thing that Job said here? We need to remember that serving the Lord is the highest honor and the greatest privilege. And we can trust that he is good Regardless of what happens, he is worthy to be served even if he should slay us, actually, as we serve him. We know, as we considered this morning, that this earthly life is not all there is. So Jesus can say that he who keeps my word will never die. So we wait in hope for the salvation which is certainly ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know that in ourselves we are weak and when tragedies strike us, this is not necessarily the first place to which our hearts go. Certainly not in ourselves and in our flesh. But Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up, that you would cause us to learn and grow daily so that we may know your goodness, so that we may rely on your faithfulness. And recognize that you are good, even when your service brings us into hardship or even into death itself. We praise you for your greatness and your goodness, your good plans, that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.